Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. It is said that Scipio Emilianus, as Carthage was going up in flames, its annihilation almost complete gazed at the city in its death throes and openly wept for his enemies. He stood wrapped in thought for a long time, pondering how every city, every people, every empire must, as men do, meet with their doom in the end. For such had been the fate of Troy, once a proud and flourishing city, and of the empires of Assyria, Media and Persia, each in their own day, the greatest in the world, and of Macedon, which only recently had blazed with such a brilliance. And then, either deliberately or because he could not help quoting them, Scipio spoke two lines of Homer. A day will come when sacred Troy shall perish, and Priam and his people all be slain. And when Polybius, speaking to him with the freedom he was granted as Scipio's tutor, asked him what he meant by these words, it is said that without any attempt to veil his meaning, Scipio made reference to his own country. For when he pondered how all things that are mortal must fall, he dreaded how Rome too would fall. So that's the end of the story of Carthage. The destruction of Carthage and the great Roman general Scipio looks out and he mourns not just the fate of Carthage and of all empires, but he thinks about the fate that awaits Rome itself. And so, Tom, we're doing this mighty series about Carthage. Yeah. We're looking forward here to the end of the story. And that's an absolutely fascinating passage because that implies a degree of empathy for Rome's great enemies that we wouldn't <laughs> yes. normally associate with the Romans. Which we have to say is very unusual. Yeah. So the Polybius who is mentioned in that passage is really our great source for much of the story we're going to be telling. So he was a Greek who had been taken hostage and taken to Rome in the second century BC. And he wrote a history about how what had been a multipolar world, so a, a Mediterranean full of different states, had become a, a unipolar world ruled by Rome. And this was his great theme. 
And the destruction of Carthage is the climax of his story. Yeah. And the fact that the city is obliterated and that the Romans hated it so much that they were willing to inflict this terrible fate on what had been one of the great, great cities of the Mediterranean kind of points to what is kind of glamorous, mysterious, and cruel about Carthage's reputation. Because the fact that most of what we know about Carthage comes from its enemies gives it a slightly kind of malevolent aura in the sources that we have. So it's a bit like the city equivalent of Cleopatra, right? All we know about Cleopatra generally comes from her enemies. Yeah, And the same is true of Carthage too. They both seem as really glamorous, sinister, depraved, degenerate, luxurious, all of those kind of orientalist things. Is that fair? Yeah. And and we've talked about how um, Dido, the legendary founder of Carthage in Virgil's great poem, The Aeneid, she is equated with Cleopatra. So that sense of kind of simultaneous, the glamour and the cruelty is absolutely enhanced by the fact that, I mean, the Romans really hated Carthage. Carthage is the city that pushes Rome closer to destruction than any other enemy that she has to face. And of course, I mean, even Scipio in that passage, he's not really weeping for Carthage. As you say, he's weeping for Rome. Yeah. And throughout the Roman sources, the Latin word for Carthaginian, punicus, I mean, it's almost always used as a kind of term of abuse. It's always associated with negative connotations. And even if you look at the Greeks, when they write about Carthage, because the Greeks had been rivals with the Carthaginians for centuries and centuries kind of trade rivals, and particularly in Sicily, they'd been, you know, geopolitical rivals. I mean, they hate the Carthaginians too. So Polybius begins his history with the first great war between the Romans and the Carthaginians, what we call the First Punic War. But there had been a history that had ended at that point written by a guy called Timaeus. And Timaeus hated the Carthaginians. Everything he writes about them is kind of negative. And so he, like the Romans, it's endlessly going on about how the Carthaginians are treacherous, they're cruel. So Timaeus, I mean, he can't get enough about child sacrifice. He absolutely loves that. He's always going on about it. (laughs) And perhaps the most shocking thing that Timaeus alleges about the Carthaginians is that they wear underpants beneath their robes. They wear underpants underneath their robes? Yeah, not like Scotsmen. Right. Okay. Did Greeks not wear underpants, Tom? Apparently not. I don't believe that. I think they probably did. Timaeus Timaeus condemns it as absolutely shocking behaviour. I find that implausible. So just to step back a second for people who are completely bewildered where we are and what we're talking about. We're talking about the city of Carthage, which flourishes from very roughly its dates, Tom. Ninth century up to the the second century. So it becomes one of the great superpowers of the Mediterranean, this maritime power, very mercantile. And the thing about it, so going back to that reading, Carthage going up in flames, the thing that gives Carthage this enduring, one of the things anyway that gives it this enduring glamour and mystery is that almost everything is destroyed. Now you said last time that there are some stones and stuff left in Tunis, pretty much on the site of Carthage, but all its libraries destroyed. Everything written by the Carthaginians. We're told that they're given away to um, a people in Libya, famous horsemen called Numidians. The story goes that they give it away. Yeah. The one collection of books that the Romans do keep yeah. is a 28-volume treatise on agriculture. That's depressing. No, but apparently you know, the Carthaginians were tremendous agronomists. Right. And as you say, there's this story that it gets sown with salt. The ruins get sown with salt. This isn't actually true. It actually got invented in 1920. Oh. <laughs> and it's now been repeated over and over again. Right. And there are kind of places. So we talked about the Tofet, the place where they did the child sacrifices in the previous episode. And that kind of got buried beneath 
mm-hmm. kind of the rubble of the city, which the Romans used as, as filler for new settlements. So there are fragments of it, but there's not a huge amount. Right. I mean, you have to try and stop seeing it through Roman and perhaps particularly Greek eyes because the Greeks did kind of respect Carthage as almost being on a level with the Greeks themselves and there was no higher source of praise. Right. So Aristotle, for instance, he has a list of all the various constitutions of cities and Carthage is the only non-Greek city to be included in that. Okay. He actually rates Carthage very highly. You know, he ranks it with Sparta and Crete as one of the top three constitutions in the world. So, you know, there are kind of positive takes as well. But of course, it's really important to emphasize that Carthage is not just a kind of ersatz Greek city. It's Phoenician. Yeah, because you talked about that in the last episode. So the Phoenicians, who are these people from modern day Lebanon, Tyre and Sidon. Yeah. You think they did exist. Some historians kind of think they're invented. But you and other historians think that there was a kind of commonality of identity among those Lebanese people. Yeah. And that still matters in Carthage. They're still very conscious of themselves as descended in the same way that Americans would look to Great Britain. Same kind of relationship, Tom. So you think about the most famous Carthaginian of all is Hannibal, who leads an army against the Romans, elephants over the Alps. I mean, that literally means the grace of Baal. So Baal is, you know, the Lord. So the grace of the Lord. Yeah. And, uh, That is one of really only a handful of names that the Carthaginian elite seem to have used and which derive from Tyre. And it makes it very, very annoying because there are multiple people. They've all got the same name, right? There are waves upon waves of Hanos who appear throughout Carthaginian history. So we'll have to try and negotiate that. And are we going to get more child sacrifice in today's episode? No, we're not. Oh. But listeners can be reassured that the very final section of this series, there's some sensational torture to look forward to. So all kinds of atrocities. Okay, brilliant. We love a bit of sensational torture. So should we go through the sweep of Carthage's history? I would love nothing more, Tom. (laughs) Good. So again, we talked about this in the previous episode. The traditional date of Carthage's founding is 814, and it's absolutely not implausible. And it is called the new city, Carthadash in Phoenician. Mm -hmm which implies that it is founded to be a city, to be a kind of permanent colonial settlement. Right. And I think the reason for that is that its location is tremendously advantageous. Yeah. So as you said, it's just north of where Tunis is now. So it's that bit of Africa that sticks out towards Sicily. And its location is very, very advantageous. So it's a bit like Constantinople. There's a peninsula that sticks out. Yeah. So it's defensible but it is also large enough that there is room for expansion. I believe, Tom, you can get a light rail now that goes along the peninsula and all the stops are called kind of Hamilcar. And... Oh, that's so romantic. I've never actually been. Have you not? So to give people a sense of it, you get this sort of little railway stroke tram thing out of the centre of Tunis, which I have to say I don't massively recommend. And every now and again you get off, the various stops they'll say, brilliant Carthaginian site here. And I went with a former girlfriend who, it's fair to say, was not a massive convert to Carthaginian history. <laughs> Punic history. So <laughs> we'd kind of get off this and we'd walked a little bit and there was like a sort of what looked like a kind of disused bit of waste ground and a load of old stones hanging around. Oh, I love it. I can't believe I haven't taken my children on a holiday there. And a very sort of garbled little caption would say, possibly child sacrifice things, who knows, <laughs> you know, and that was it. I wouldn't say I was held in massively high regard by my traveling companion during that holiday. I know, but Dominic, imagine that you were back there in the, the 8th century, shortly after its founding. Well, that was what I was saying, Tom. That was what I was saying. And you've got the Acropolis in front of you. So this was called the Birsa, yeah. which in Greek means oxide. And so they had this story that Dido, when she landed, she was allowed by the local king to have as much space as could be covered by an oxide. And so she cuts it into tiny slices and 
puts it around the beer sir. I think I've heard that story about 20 different cities. I know. <laughs> and it's definitely not true because actually right. the name derives from a, an Acadian word for fortress. So, all right. But it's a nice story. And of course it has harbours. Yeah. Spectacular harbours. And this is really why they settle it. But the other thing is that it is perfectly situated to dominate two alternative trade routes. So one, obviously from Phoenicia in the east, right the way up to Spain in the west, but also just as crucially north-south. So you've got Sicily, very accessible just across the sea. And then of course you've got Italy. So mm. Carthage is perfectly placed to control all this kind of trade. And as a result of this, it grows very fast. And so archaeologists looking at all these fascinating sites that you visited with your, yeah. your girlfriend estimate that probably within a century of its founding, there may be 30, 40,000 people. Oh, right. And it expands so fast that the walls keep having to be knocked down and rebuilt to make room for people. And just you mentioned agronomy. Mm. So the, the sort of hinterland is very fertile. And actually, you see that today in Tunisia. You know, people probably haven't been to North Africa think, oh, it's probably all desert. It's absolutely not. It's kind of olive groves and lovely fields and all that kind of thing. Yes. And it actually takes time for the Carthaginians to develop this. Because to begin with, I think they definitely remain a trading power. They're not kind of particularly expanding into the hinterland. Because there are tribes there. Yeah. Bedouin, Tom, surely. Or Berbers or something. Berbers, yeah. Yeah. Libyans, they're called, or the Numidians, who we also mentioned. So I think to begin with, it's primarily a trading city. And so this is why Carthage itself, of course, is a colonial settlement, but they then start going out and planting settlements across the Western Mediterranean, so particularly on Sardinia. And these are not towns. These are just kind of trading posts. So rather like the settlements that, say, the Venetians would have put up yeah. later or the Portuguese in Africa. So sort of forts and markets, basically. Yes. And as with the Portuguese settlements, there's a kind of underpinning of violence. So it's kind of bad news for the locals, really. Right. And so by the 6th century, Carthage is no longer colonial relative to Phoenicia. Mm -hmm. And in part, that's because... Back in Phoenicia, the Babylonians have conquered Tyre. So there's been a long 13-year siege. Nebuchadnezzar takes control of it, the guy who will go on to conquer Jerusalem. And at the same time, there's a kind of collapse in the price of silver because the Phoenicians have been mining all this silver in Spain and there's a glut. And so basically the Tyrian economy implodes. Inflation, Tom. Galloping inflation, as with Spain, when you know they discover silver. Yeah. And so this leaves the field open for Carthage to basically displace the mother country. So again, a bit like America and Britain, I guess. Mm. So a sad story. <laughs> <laughs> but it's imperialism. It's still very Venetian. It's not, say, like the Romans conquering territory. Yeah. It's still planting settlements and kind of constructing trade nodes. But there is a straw in the wind at this point because there's a kind of garbled account in both the Greek and the Roman sources writing much later of a guy called Malchus. And that has a hint of the Phoenician word for king. And he is supposed to have campaigned very hard in Sicily and Sardinia. And it, his exploits seem to be slightly exaggerated. But it does suggest that the Greeks are starting to arrive on the scene now. So the Carthaginians have had it all their way. But now the Greeks are turning up right. and starting to compete for resources in Sicily, in Sardinia, in southern Gaul, in Spain. So at this point in the Mediterranean, there is no, as it were, superpower. It's all up for grabs, right? Nobody is sophisticated and powerful enough. Well, Carthage is the most powerful city. Even at this stage. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And has been accustomed to having its own way on the kind of the trade front for a fair while. Right. Which is why the arrival of the Greeks, particularly in Sicily, is so destabilizing. So in the 730s, 
the most significant Greek city in Sicily is founded, and that's Syracuse, which of course is is still there. I mean, kind of wonderfully oh, yeah. situated. And so Syracuse is squaring up to Phoenician cities that have been founded in the east. So the most significant of these is Panormus, which is today Palermo. So these are cities that are being founded in places that are are kind of absolutely perfect for cities. So Panormus is actually the Greek name for it. Brilliantly, the Phoenician name seems to have been Ziz. Ziz. Which is, That's yeah, a brilliant name. Apparently it means flower. Right. So it's such a shame it's not still called Ziz. And the other very significant Phoenician settlement is a place called Mochia, which we mentioned in the previous episode as having a top tofet. Yeah. Top place for child sacrifice. And a bit like Tyre, it's on an island. And so archaeologists have been able to look at it. You know, they know what it was like in the sixth century. It had kind of incredible dry docks, temples, had the Tophet, of course, industrial zones. And again, it was involved in making dye. So this involves smashing up mollusks and leaving them to dry in the sun. And also it's making garum, which is this kind of no, fish sauce, fish based sauce. So I think you could assume that Phoenician cities stank. I mean, you can imagine yeah. drying mollusks and drying fish. I mean, that's that's quite hard. But would they stink more than others, Tom? That's the question. So surely Greek cities would have had their own stench, wouldn't they? But the Phoenicians control the dye market. Right. The Greeks never really work out how to do that. So I think that adds a kind of extra dimension. Extra level, yeah. So Panormus and Mochia, they're not subject to Carthage, but obviously they're under Carthaginian influence. And the sense that Phoenician settlements in Western Sicily are going to be absorbed into a Carthaginian sphere of influence intensifies because, of course, the Greeks are spreading from eastern Sicily westwards and they are starting to crash into the Carthaginian sphere of influence, the Phoenician sphere of influence. So by 600, you are getting cities that are almost going toe-to-toe with the Phoenicians. So you have a place called Salinas on the south coast of Sicily mm-hmm. and a place called Himera on the north coast. And in 580, Greek colonists try to build a city directly opposite Mochia on its island. The Phoenicians, they form an alliance, Carthaginians join in, they drive the Greek colonists away. And the result of this is that Mochia improves its defences, but so also does the Greek city of Salinas. So there's a sense that, you know, a cold war is really starting to hot up. Do we know about this from archaeology? Because you mentioned improving their defences. And also we know about it from historians because Herodotus, this is kind of almost within living memory. Right. And so he writes about this, but he also writes particularly about a city on the eastern seaboard of what's now Turkey. So on the Aegean coast called Fakia, the amusingly named Fakia. Mm-hmm. And the Persians have arrived on the scene and they have conquered the Greek cities on the eastern Aegean. And the Fakians are besieged. They all get into their ships while the Persian siege works are outside. They sail off west. And so when the Persians break in, the city is empty and deserted. And so the Phaceans head westwards. They sail into the Western Mediterranean. And basically, you know, they are operating as pirates because by this point, there are Greek cities that they've been planted in, in Corsica mm-hmm. and in southern Gaul. So Nice is originally Nicaea yeah. and Marseille is originally Marsilia. They are Greek cities. Yeah. And the Phaceans are just sailing around, acting like pirates, preying on Carthaginian ships. And so the Carthaginians ally themselves with a people called the Etruscans, who are in northern Italy. Uh, yeah. They've given their name to Tuscany. Yeah, of course. And the Etruscans and the Carthaginians they make a, an enormous fleet. They sail out. They fight the Phaceans in a battle that comes to be called the Battle of the Sardinian Sea. 
And although both sides suffer heavy losses, the Fakians have the worst of it. Lots of them are taken prisoner and the Etruscans take them back to Tuscany or Etruria, we should probably call it, mm-hmm. and stone them to death. Tom, before you move on, one fact for you about this settling of uh, French cities. The nickname for Olympique de Marseille, the football team, is still, I believe, the Phoenicians. Is it? Yeah, I think so. I didn't know that. That's wonderful. I can remember seeing that in L'Equipe or something in the 1990s and being completely baffled <laughs> by it. Theo, our producer, says it is indeed a terrible team. Oh, well, that's a sorry reflection on the decline of the Phoenicians. Yeah. Very sad. When I saw them, they had Tony Cascarino playing for them, Tom. Goodness. A fake Irishman. Anyway, that's by the by. Well, the Irish also uh, falsely claimed to be descended from Phoenicians. Really? In the 18th century. Yeah. It all connects. It does all connect. <laughs> that's the case for a renowned novelist, Dan Brown. Yes. To get his teeth into there. <laughs> so basically, the Carthaginians, I think, are absolutely holding their own. They're seeing off Greek trade rivals. They are keeping the Western Mediterranean shipping lanes under their control. And what they are also starting to do by this point is, is what you alluded to earlier, that they are colonizing the African lands that lie beyond the city itself. Right. So probably up until the sixth century, they'd been dependent on Sardinia for food imports. I mean, that's basically why they'd kind of set up settlements there because they could grow the kind of staples that they needed. But certainly by the sixth century, it's clear from archaeological remains that the foodstuffs that they are using in Carthage are mainly coming from their own backyard. And they can do this basically for two reasons. So one is that they now have the money that they can afford mercenaries and thereby subdue the Libyan tribes in the hinterland, right? subordinate them. And the other is what we alluded to earlier, this agrarian revolution. So the 28 volumes of agricultural know-how that the Romans saved This was written by a guy called Mago, Mm -hmm. and he basically, for the Romans, is synonymous with making the desert bloom. So he is the first guy to, as far as we know, advocate the regular use of fertilizers, the pruning of trees, so olives and so on, of vines. And Carthage becomes very famous for its sweet wines, also for its fruit. So the Romans know the pomegranate, for instance, as the Marlum punicum, the Carthaginian apple. And they're very technologically adept when it comes to agriculture. So there's this kind of weird threshing machine, which comes to be known by the Romans as a punic cart. Mm -hmm. They're very good at irrigation. They love a bath. That's perhaps because of the smelling issue, Tom. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yes, you walk past all that garum and uh, you need to have a wash. So, Tom, just stop you a second. Yeah. You're talking about the hinterland, the African hinterland, it says in your notes. So here's a question for you. If we've got any American academics who listen to this podcast, they will undoubtedly be thinking of this question. Is there any meaningful sense in which the Carthaginians, other than those purely sort of starkly geographical, is there any sense in which they are African? Africa at this point, I mean, the Roman province of Africa is, I mean, essentially the kind of the lands that were ruled by Carthage. So in that sense, Carthage is the capital of Africa. Mm-hmm. The word Africa for the Romans wouldn't have the sense that it has for us of you know this vast continent. So yeah, I mean Carthage is a city in Africa. Yeah. I mean they see themselves as Phoenician, as we've said, but you know, there are Phoenician settlements in Sicily, in Africa, in Spain. They preserve their Phoenician identity, but of course they're aware of the, the geographical context that they're in. But when they think of the world, they're basically looking outwards to the Mediterranean. They're not looking backwards. I mean the Sahara is behind them? Do they have sub-Saharan links? This is why they are sending ships out through the Straits of Gibraltar. They're always looking to the sea. Right. That is how they trade. Right. The lands that lie behind Carthage, heading inland, 
are there basically to sustain and feed Carthage mm-hmm. and to provide it with troops, with mercenaries. Yeah. But I think their ultimate loyalties is always with the sea. And just one last question on this front. I know this is a, probably a very difficult question to answer, but as it were, ethnically, they are still the descendants of the Phoenician settlers or settlers from elsewhere in the Mediterranean. So presumably, again, not, I mean, there might well be some admixture with kind of sub-Saharan migrants or something, but probably not great. All these people are calling themselves Hannibal and Hanno, the elites. Yeah. You know, these are the Phoenician equivalent of wasps. Oh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Or people in 19th century New York who claim Dutch heritage. Yeah. These are people who are very, very aware of their pedigree and very, very proud of it. But of course, Carthage is a great teeming cosmopolitan city. So there Mm -hmm. are people drawn from across the Mediterranean. There are people from the interior of Africa. It is a great melting pot in that sense, but it absolutely retains its Phoenician identity. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. And actually, it is kind of, if there's such a word, punicizing, Phoenicianizing the interior, because by the fifth century, thanks to Mago and his threshing machines and his, you know, his fertilizer and all that kind of stuff, what had previously been kind of scrub is really starting to bloom. And Greek visitors from Sicily marvel at the fecundity of it. So to quote, the beauty of the land, its prosperity. There are gardens everywhere. There are orchards. There are you know, irrigation channels filling what had previously been dry and barren with flowing water. And so you were getting country estates, the equivalent of the villas yeah. that Roman aristocrats start to build outside Rome. You're finding these as well. And you're getting stud farms and you're getting livestock everywhere. So a Greek visitor to Carthage in, say, I don't know, the very early fifth century would know that he was visiting a city of impressive and intimidating power. It's very beautiful. It's pretty exotic. And it is potentially a menace. And again, this goes back to what we were talking about at the start of the program, that for the Greeks, Carthage is a place of mystery and fear. Wow. Exciting. So, Tom, it would be fascinating to know a little bit more about who ruled Carthage, Carthaginian politics, and the, uh, the long and dramatic history of Carthaginian imperialism. Let's do that after the break. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I've been reliably informed that when battle was joined and Hamilcar was having the worst of it, he disappeared off the face of the earth and was never seen again alive or dead. 
The explanation for this, given by the Carthaginians themselves, and not implausibly as well, is that the battle between the barbarians and the Greeks dragged on from dawn until late afternoon, and that Hamilcar stayed for the entire duration of this clash in the camp, where in his attempt to secure favourable omens, he offered up the entire bodies of sacrificial victims on a massive pyre, and it so happened, as he was pouring libations onto them, that he saw his troops turning tail, and he hurled himself onto the blaze. The reason, then, that he was never seen again was because he had been burnt to ashes. So that's Herodotus's account of the Battle of Himera, which was fought in the year 480 BC between a Carthaginian army, which was led by the great bigwig of the day, Hamilcar, ends up burning himself alive, and an army from Syracuse, its great trading rival in Sicily, led by its tyrant, who was called Gelon. Yes. Great name. Yeah. So, Tom, by this point, the Syracusians and the Carthaginians, they're the great rivals. This is the great yeah. Mediterranean derby. Yeah. Heavyweight clash, Dominic. Heavyweight clash. Heavyweight clash. And uh, Syracuse, which we now think of as an Italian city, Sicilian. So that's the big Greek city at this point. Is that right? Yes, in Sicily. And in fact, very possibly in the whole Greek world. Because 480, of course, is the year that Xerxes, the Persian king, invades Greece. And this is the year that sees the battles of Thermopylae and Salamis. And before Xerxes invades, the Greeks in Greece itself, so Athens and Sparta particularly, know the Persians are coming. And so they send ambassadors to Syracuse to ask Galon if he will help them face the Persian onslaught. Galon doesn't really want to do it, but he doesn't want to seem like he's, he's not standing by the Greeks in their hour of need. So he says, yeah, I'll do it, provided I can be commander in chief. Right. And the Spartans are not having this. And so they refuse. So Herodotus says that actually Galon might still have come and helped the Greeks had it not been for the fact that the Carthaginians that summer of mm -hmm. 480 decided to launch a massive invasion of Sicily, so of Greek Sicily. And there's no question that the Battle of Himera, which you read in that magnificent translation of Herodotus, was a really stunning Greek victory because as far as we can tell, no Carthaginian force would invade Sicily again for about half a century after that. And of course, the eeriness of that account of, of Hamilcar vanishing, supposedly having thrown himself into the flames. I mean, again, this is an absolute riff. Yeah. The Greeks are obsessed with the idea that the Carthaginians are endlessly hurling things, including their children, into flames. So there's a sense, I think, that Hamilcar is condemning himself to a kind of tofet there, that he's offering himself up as a living sacrifice. So that's mysterious. And this is the Greek obsession with Carthaginians behaving in a kind of, they have the sense that the Carthaginians are unsettling. An alien and eerie. Weird, supernatural. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And there's a further sense of the uncanny about this battle of Himera, which is that numerous Greeks claim that the battle was fought on the same day as Salamis. So there's this kind of dovetailing of right. the Persian barbarians and the Carthaginian barbarians being defeated at the same time. And the claim is that the Carthaginians were invading Sicily to distract Syracuse and the other Greeks in Sicily from going to the rescue of Athens and Sparta because the Tyrians are subjects of the Persian kings. And so there's been kind of liaison between the Persians and the Carthaginians. But that's perfectly plausible, right? I mean, it's perfectly plausible that ambassadors could have gone between the two, that they could have said, listen, we'll attack on such and such a time. You know, why don't we do this? No, because 
I think the ulterior motive there very plainly is that Galen is trying to cast himself as a hero, kind of alongside Leonidas or whatever. Of course. But that doesn't mean that that couldn't have happened. I mean, people do collude all the time in history. But we know enough about how this battle came to be fought that it's very clear that this was nothing to do with a kind of synchronized geopolitical yeah. you know, clash of titans. Hamilcar is not launching an invasion in cahoots with Xerxes. What he's doing is he has a Greek ally called Terilus, who is the tyrant of Himera. They have a very kind of close bond, a sacred bond of guest friendship, as it was called. Yeah. And this guy, Terilus, has been expelled by Galon's forces. He's been kicked out. And so Terilus goes to his friend, Hamilcar, and says, would you, you know, would you help me? And Hamilcar says, yeah, sure I would. And of course, Hamilcar is doing it for strategic reasons. Yeah. He knows how dangerous Galon is, not least because actually, you know, and this shows how the idea of absolute division between Greeks and barbarians makes no sense because Hamilcar's mother is actually from Syracuse. So he knows the city very well. So he's half Greek. He's half Greek. But more significantly, he belongs to a clan called the Maganids, so mm -hmm. descended from a guy called Mago. Yeah. And it's this that enables him to do what he's doing because he's by miles the most powerful, wealthy, influential figure to the degree that he's described in many of the Greek sources as being a Basileus, a king. And he is operating kind of as a private citizen, going to the help of a friend, doing it for the good of his city at the same time. And that essentially is his motivation. And there's a sense, I think, that it's tremendous chutzpah from Galon, because Galon is a tyrant. Mm -hmm. He has crushed the democracy in Syracuse. You know, there's no sense of that. He's made himself its sole leader. And it's Carthage, which will go on to be praised by Aristotle for the perfection of its constitution, precisely because it's not subject to tyrants. Okay. So I'm absolutely sticking up for Carthage here. I think the idea that Himera is a kind of great battle won for the Greeks against barbarian despotism is shameful propaganda. Oh, good for Carthage. Yeah. Good for Carthage. Yeah. So Tom, Aristotle loves its constitution. So it doesn't have a king, doesn't have an emperor, but it's not quite a republic. What is it? We're not entirely sure, partly because it evolves quite a lot, I think, over time. And partly also because, you know, the Romans got rid of all the Carthaginian writings. So we're reliant on the Greeks and the Romans for descriptions of it. And they use their own words, which come freighted with all kinds of baggage. Yeah, of course. So Hamilcar, you know, is he a king? It's difficult to know because Herodotus says that he's a king, but he also says that he had become king of Carthage by virtue of his courage. So that suggests that he's kind of been elected. And Romans, when they talk about the dynasty of Mago, so the dynasty mm -hmm. that, that Hamilcar belongs to, they use the word dux, which is a military leader yeah. or dictator, which of course is yeah. the office where, you know, in times of emergency, a citizen is appointed to lead the state. So I think that whether there was a monarchy that got replaced by a kind of an appointed king substitute or whether there was never a monarchy and that was always what happened, we're not sure. But essentially the monarchical element is, is probably elective if they did have it. A strong man chosen by his peers. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But I think what is definite is that there is a kind of dynastic quality to the authority that the family of Mago exercise. So... Interestingly, the reputation of Hamilcar, despite the defeat at Himera, you know, it's not particularly blackened. The Meganid prestige doesn't seem to have been particularly impaired by it. And the Meganids remain the dominant dynasty in Carthage over the course of the fifth century. So it's likely that we talked about Hanno the Navigator. So he's one of the, the many Hannos that will feature in this story. You remember the guy who sails out through the Pillars of Hercules, goes down the coast of Africa yeah. and sees what were maybe chimpanzees. 
Mm-hmm. So he was probably Hamilcar's son. And you said he's a descendant from a guy called Mago, but he's not the agronomist. The guy's writing about like crops. No, he's a different one. This is the awful confusion. <laughs> there are only about 10 Carthaginian names. Right. No, he's a different Mago. Okay. And then Hanno the Navigator's son, Hannibal. But he's not Hannibal. <laughs> no, he's right. not Hannibal. So he goes back on the attack in Sicily and he gets a spectacular vengeance for Himera. So he captures Salinas, mm-hmm. which is the, the Greek city on the south coast near the Phoenician zone of influence, raises its uh, walls completely and he captures Himera and he obliterates it from the face of the earth. Crikey. So, yeah. And he then, according to the Greeks, he rounds up 3,000 prisoners taken at Himera and he leads them to the place where Hamilcar is supposed to have immolated himself in the fire. And there he slaughters the lot of them. Oh, my word. I'm very strong stuff. As a bloody offering to the memory of his grandfather. But then in the 4th century, it goes wrong for the Maginids. They attack Sicily again, and that's a bit of a shambles. Is that right? It's a complete shambles. And this time, it's not just that the invasion gets defeated, but that the guy who leads it, who's a guy called Himilco, so that's the great-grandson of the Hamilcar who threw himself on a funeral pyre, he commits all kinds of terrible sacrilegious acts. So he's endlessly burning down Greek temples and doing things like that. And so as a result, as the Greeks see it, and indeed perhaps the Carthaginians, his army gets kind of ravaged by an epidemic. Mm. They're camped out in front of Syracuse trying to capture the city and plague just sweeps the Carthaginian camp. And Himilco kind of goes mad and he flees the siege. He goes back to Carthage. And when he gets there, he's so ashamed that he takes off all his finery. He puts on the rough tunic of a slave. He covers his hair in ashes and he kind of roams around lamenting his utter failure in front of Syracuse, the fact that he's abandoned his troops, that he's betrayed them. And then he walls himself up in his own house and kills himself. Oh, crikey. And so obviously, you know, this isn't good branding for his dynasty. No. And that's like the end of the Maganids. Oh, my word. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Terrible way to end. With that story, you have the sense that perhaps something is not entirely being told. Yeah. It seems quite odd. <laughs> yeah. Having listened to all this, so the way that the Carthaginians are behaving strikes me as absolutely standard kind of Mediterranean. It is. Great power politics. For all that the Greeks try to paint them as like these weird, sinister, you know, depraved, even the way their constitution works, I mean, it's not so outlandish. It's not as weird and orientalist as we would think, right? I mean, this is pretty standard. Right. And so this is why Aristotle is able to praise it, is able to compare it to to Crete or to Sparta. And Aristotle is praising Carthage for resisting kind of tyranny as he would praise a Greek city. Yeah. And actually the backdrop to Aristotle writing about this is a demonstration of the Carthaginian refusal to accept tyranny. So in the wake of the collapse of Maganid power, there's another guy who emerges and he inevitably is called Hanno. Yes, but of course. As I say, waves of Hannos. Yeah. So he comes to be called Hanno the Great. And it's honestly like a kind of football league where year after year, Syracuse and Carthage are meeting up and sometimes Carthage wins and sometimes Syracuse wins, but basically they're kind of, you know, they're top of the league. Mm. You know, sometimes, you know, one is at the top, sometimes the other is at the top. The middle of the fourth century. So this is when Aristotle is very much hanging around in Greece. Hanno the Great wins this crushing naval victory over Syracuse. And this kind of redounds tremendously to his, his glory. He's incredibly rich. It enables him to rule in Syracuse as the dominant figure for about two decades. 
But as the time passes, the Carthaginians become ever more restive and they fear that Hanno is kind of aiming at, I suppose, what we today would call anachronistically a dictatorship. Perhaps the Greeks would call a tyranny. And so Hanno, it is said, is aware that there are you know, conspiracies against him among his, his peers in the Carthaginian elite. And so he, he invites them all to a banquet to celebrate the wedding of his daughter. And the plan is that he's going to poison them. So the wine comes out. He's waiting for all his guests to kind of keel over dead. Yeah. But he gets rumbled. We're not told how maybe there's a kind of, you know, a taster or someone keels over. But anyway, his attempt to poison the elite fails. And so on the back of this, it is said that Hanno decides that he's openly going to launch a coup against the constitution. So he frees 20,000 slaves. He recruits the local Libyan tribes, but he gets defeated. He gets captured and he gets crucified. And we should say that there is quite a lot of crucifixion in Carthaginian history. Okay. And the Carthaginians have a habit of, I mean, basically, if you, you know, you get appointed to a command and you screw it up. You'll be crucified. The likelihood is that you will be crucified. Right. And so this is one of the things that the Romans attribute to the Carthaginians is the invention of crucifixion. And although, of course, the Romans are great, you know, they love a bit of crucifixion themselves. They say this is a marker of how cruel the Carthaginians were. So a general is watching a battle and he says, oh, God, I'm going to be absolutely crucified for this. <laughs> yeah, literally. Literally, yeah. Literally. But again, it's this, you know, the football manager who's failed. Exactly. Exactly. Up on a cross. Yeah. Tortured to death. So going back to Aristotle, he thinks, brilliant, Carthage resisted tyranny, all this kind of thing. But like all these places, Tom, this is still a place that is defined by wealth by breeding by there's a kind of patrician elite who basically control the levers of power and by phoenician inheritance and that's actually what aristotle admires i mean aristotle's a tremendous snob yeah <laughs> he, he thinks that you know that people with wealth and breeding should be in a position of power so it's like boston 19th century boston Tom. i think it's even more like venice okay and there's a wonderful description of how the Carthaginian aristocracy functioned by a French historian called Gilbert Charles Picard. And he writes, an aristocratic republic, a sort of ancient Venice, secret and well-ordered, where individuals are subject to the harsh laws of the austere and disciplined rich. So just as in Venice, you know, you, mm -hmm. have the, you have the doge, but you also have, you know, these councils that meet in sinister conclave. So in Carthage, you have the Council of the Elders, as it's called. So that's literally a Senate. I mean, that's what a Senate means you know, assembly of, of elders. And you have this mysterious body of men called the Tribunal of 104. Right. And these are the guys who appoint the generals, who appoint the officials, who supervise the law courts, who set up panels of commissioners to investigate things that go wrong. So these are the people who would sentence an incompetent general to crucifixion. But equally, of course, if they turn out to be competent, then the same fate may be visited on them. And they could be crucified. Absolutely. And you have two senior magistrates called suffets. You know, it's kind of analogous to the, the Hebrew word for judge. Mm -hmm. And these are, they're kind of like consuls. Yeah. So the Romans have consuls. They are magistrates who are elected in pairs and they serve a term of office for one year. And there's a popular assembly as well? There is also a popular assembly. So there is also a kind of democratic element as well. So it's a kind of complicated system that does nevertheless seem to work. And I think the reason for that is that you know, it is above all a city of merchants and everyone in Carthage recognises that the wealth and the power of Carthage is founded in its commercial aptitudes. And so people at the head of the state recognise what the goals of Carthaginian policy have to be. I mean, Carthage has to kind of keep markets open. It has to open up new markets, whether that is by 
you know, at the point of a sword or by kind of imposing trade treaties on kind of distant parts to monopolize the exploitation of these various territories. If you can't have a monopoly, then you establish pacts that will determine how much things should be sold for to ensure the freedom of the seas, to abolish piracy, to cut down kind of rival powers. Yeah. All these kind of things. These are the constants of Carthaginian policy throughout its history. But by the fourth century, I think you are starting to see a kind of move from that kind of Venetian Portuguese policy of imperialism to a more Spanish approach or dare one say a Roman one. So those Phoenician settlements in the west of Sicily, so Panormus and Moccia, for instance, Mm -hmm. by the fourth century, they have basically been absorbed into a Carthaginian empire. And at the same time, Carthage is also planting colonies in Sicily of its own directly to maintain its, its control. Because of course, you've got Carthage on the African side of that strait, and you've got Sicily, the western side of Sicily, Mm. Carthage absolutely needs to control those seas because without it, you know, its trade will be throttled. So the major city that it founds in this period is what's now Masala, as in the wine, Nelson's favourite wine, but was known by the Romans as Lilibeum. And this is founded in 397 after the Syracusans had captured and obliterated Moccia, the foul-smelling city on the the island with its uh, garum factory. And Lilibeum is founded to be a kind of, you know, a, a sanctuary for people who had fled Moccia. But also it's settled by lots and lots of Carthaginian colonists. And it's basically the westernmost point of Sicily. And it has massive walls, so kind of 20 feet, has a great big ditch. It's built to be completely impregnable. And this idea of a Carthaginian empire that is simultaneously Phoenician, I think is exemplified by the fact that this is the point when the Carthaginians introduce their coinage with the palm tree on it. And mm. the Greek word for palm tree is Phoenix. And so there's a kind of allusion there to the idea of the Phoenicians. So they're still, even at this late stage, very much into the kind of Phoenician heritage. They are because it provides a way of allowing what had previously been independent Phoenician settlements to feel that they have a kind of stake in what effectively is becoming a Carthaginian empire. Yeah. And if they capture Greek cities, so they capture Salinas, for instance, on the south coast, it had always been a kind of thorn in the Carthaginian side. They capture that and they plant a, a Phoenician garrison on the Acropolis and other Greek cities are made tributary. So that basically in this period, the fact that Carthage rules the western half of Sicily is being established by treaties that are being signed with you know, Syracuse right. and with, with other Greek cities in the east. And so we're now into the age of Alexander the Great. Yeah. And so I think that by this point, Carthage is kind of becoming an empire in a way that would be recognisable, say, to Alexander. Yes. So Tom, Alexander obviously never did conquer Carthage, but he was said to have thought about it. And presumably that reflects a wider ambition among sort of Greek warlords, as it were, yeah. that they think, you know, let's bring Carthage down. Carthage is a prize worth taking. Well, I mean, I think obviously what Alexander's example does is give to other Greeks the notion that going off and conquering great empires, you know, what a tremendous thing to do. And Carthage is a kind of obvious one. And so say in Syracuse, you know, as we've said, the Syracuse are endlessly going to war with Carthage, but there is this sense that it's kind of like a sport where, you know, it's governed by rules. Neither one is trying to knock the other one out. But in the wake of Alexander 
and his successes. You have a, this guy called Agathocles, who's actually very humble stock. He's a kind of a son of a potter, but he rises to become the tyrant of Syracuse. And he actually ends up invading Africa. Mm. You know, I mean, this is the first time that a Greek army has landed in Africa. And at one point it looks as though Carthage is going to fall to Agathocles. And if that had happened, then obviously that would have been a feat comparable to Alexander overthrowing Persia. Yeah. And we're told that Carthage is reduced to such desperate straits by this invasion that they immolate 500 of the children of the Carthaginian elite. In desperation. In desperation. In the event it all goes wrong, there's a kind of uprising back in Syracuse and Agathocles has to go back home, Scarpa's back. And the Carthaginians sign a treaty with Agathocles, which is, I mean, it's pretty tough on them. They have to pay a large indemnity, but they survive. And within a few decades, they are back as prosperous, as intimidating as ever. And so Carthage has survived where Persia didn't. Carthage has held off, you know, the Greek adventurer trying to overthrow it. And I think that that's tribute to the fact that it's just a very, very formidable power. I mean, probably we arrive at the dawning of the third century BC. Mm. It's clearly the most formidable power in the Western Mediterranean. The comparison that we mentioned in the last episode, we talked about how after the French Revolution, during the kind of French Revolution and Napoleonic Wars, the French would say, well, we are the land power, we are Rome, and Britain is Carthage. You know, sort of only interested in money and, and navies. Is Carthage still similar? So you said that Carthage was becoming more of a kind of land empire with bases and forts and stuff like that. But is it still very, very reliant on its navy rather than its army? Well, I mean, to pursue the comparison with Britain, of course, I mean, the British are not averse to conquering territory, but they are tending to do it because they need naval bases. And then to maintain their naval bases, they need to control the hinterland and they need to keep the French out or whatever. Yeah. And I think it's rather similar to that. The Carthaginians are not necessarily interested in territory for its own sake, but they are interested absolutely in maintaining their control of Western Sicily, mm -hmm. because otherwise they'll lose control of the Straits. They want to keep control of Sardinia. They want to keep control of Southern Spain, yeah. because without that, you know, they won't be able to maintain the source of their wealth, which is trade. But that is why the French do compare Britain in the Napoleonic Wars to Carthage. And actually, the weird thing is that uh, all the places that you've mentioned, they're the sort of places, I mean, you said about Nelson, like in that wine, they're the places that he's always visiting. Absolutely. For the same reason. So the Carthaginians are interested in the same harbours that the British are yeah. interested in, in the 18th century. Yeah. Because if you want a blue water empire, yeah. you have to have a bit of territorial control. I mean, by this point, I realise that we haven't actually described what Carthage looks like in its, its heyday. It is a very, very impressive city because it's a very wealthy city. So you've still got, you know, the Birsa, this Acropolis, which is the kind of the old town. The old city is counterpointed by a kind of grid system yeah. that's kind of cutting edge design, the same kind that you have in Alexandria. and if you imagine kind of the Acropolis, the Birsa, and slopes running down to the sea, the streets look like a kind of fan running down to the shoreline. Further from the, the old centre of the city, you have kind of beautiful villas, you have docks, you have harbours, you have massive arsenals, you have teeming industrial zones, yeah. you have the Tophet, of course, you have cemeteries. Temples, Tom? Beautiful temples, yes, particularly to Balhamon, the great patron, and Tanit, his partner. These are the great patrons of Carthage. But you also have 
massive bristling walls. And these extend more than 18 miles around the limits of the city. And these are what had seen Agathocles off. He just, you know, he couldn't break through. Yeah. And you'd look at Carthage at the beginning of the third century BC and you'd say, you know, she is absolutely secure. No one can possibly rival her. Her only conceivable rival, Syracuse, has had a crack and has dismally failed. You know, she's going to last forever. Hmm. I mean, who can rival her? But Tom, am I right in thinking a new rival will emerge from the backwater of Italy, of central Italy, and that that will set the stage for the most extraordinary superpower clash in ancient history? Hmm. Is that about right? Well, we'll find out in our next episode when we will be looking at the rise of Rome. Crikey, what drama. So listen, if you are a member of our own sinister and decadent mercantile empire, <laughs> the Rest is History Club, as you probably know, you can listen to those episodes about the battle between Carthage and Rome. You can listen to that right now. If you're not, if you're very much on the outside looking in, then I'm afraid you'll just have to wait until, as the young people say, that episode drops. So yeah, you can either be part of the elite or you can be part of the rabble. Your choice. But either way, it's Carthage versus Rome next. Don't miss it. Live and exclusive on The Rest is History. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.